My name is Mick Leary, and uh, you might have noticed from the bio um, that Essen gave me a very, I'm not sure it's glowing, but he gave me a bio and he made this interesting comment that he said, he's a PCA pastor, a plumber, and an Irishman, pretty much the whole package. <laughs> now, I'm not sure what that means, but I can tell you something about my friend Essen. When we are together, uh, we see each other at Presbytery. I've served in Charlottesville for the last seven years, and so they don't let me out on Sunday mornings. But now I'm available, and so I'm here. And when I'm with Essen, I'm always impressed at his ability to say what needs to be say, said with such a gentle way. And I love hearing him preach. I love hearing how he opens the gospel. He has this gentle pastoral way about him. I do not have any of that. And so I am always in awe of Essen, but he somehow understands the Irishman in me, and he has allowed me to be me. So this morning, I haven't preached in a while, so if I get wound really tight, I apologize in advance. Uh, Susie will signal me if I get too wound up. And uh, Essen told me I could say what I wanted to. And so if anything you don't like, you just call him when he gets back and say, Mick said this, and I, I'll tell you, he told me I could. So let's open God's word together this morning. Um, <clears throat> we're going to drop ourselves into the middle of a story, but I'll get to that in a minute. So I understand, pardon me, are the children dismissed? Children, I need to be dismissed if you're ready. Would you remind me to do that at 11 at the right time? Okay. <clears throat> I watched the RUF guy do it, and he was like, huh? Children? Okay, anyways. So what I'm asking you to do is stand with me, as your custom is, as your practice, for the reading of God's Word. We're looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 28. Hear with me now the Word of the living God. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see where they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abram stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you sweep them away in the Away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put, righteous, put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of our God and it stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father and our Creator, you remind us 
that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your living word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these scriptures, shine the light and once again awaken us to the hearing and the living of this radiant truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name because he said we could. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to consider this vignette, this picture of Abraham's conversation with the Lord. This passage follows a visit from the three that you notice. There's a a sketch of that on on the order of service. And the visitors are preparing to leave, and we read of Abraham's prayer. And as you notice, there's an outline, and there's a There's an outline which is an introduction, and that will be the context. I need to contextualize this for us for a few minutes. I'm not sure when the last time you read this particular passage, so don't worry, we'll get you up to speed. And then second is prayer is as a response, and then prayer is recognition. When I was a graduate from college, I graduated, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter, 1978. That's a long time ago. And my first job, my first real job was teaching. And I was teaching in a, I was hired to teach in a self-contained classroom. I had 18 first graders in a self-contained Christian classroom. So here, can you picture this? I'm 22 years old, teaching 18 first graders. God does have a sense of humor, and we must never forget that. So what I enjoyed most about teaching in that particular situation was teaching reading. First the alphabet, then the letter sounds. I taught phonics, by the way. Does anybody remember what that is? Okay. Then short sentences, see, jack, run. Then longer ones, then paragraphs. You get the idea. You get the idea. But what reading is designed to do is to lead to comprehension. Leading is designed to teach us from what is written, familiarize us with the concept, give us information leading to life formation. You are what you read. You are what you read how we view life, how we live, and none of that happens overnight. It takes a very long time to learn. And see, this is the type of progression we've been watching with Abraham. Now, honestly, I chose a scene somewhere in the middle of Abraham's life. Uh, In fact, Taylor sent me an email and said, are you sure this is the passage you want to use? I think he was doing that just to be diligent, but he's probably wondering, huh? I mean, do you guys wonder about this passage when I started reading it? Okay, good. Good. I got the right audience. Okay. Abraham is first mentioned in 11, chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 27. And, and, then he, and then again, his death is recorded in 25, verse 11. So approximately 13 chapters cover the life of Abraham. Now, I would encourage you this afternoon or sometime, to just sit down and read the life of Abraham. Pick it up in chapter 11 and go all the way through the end of Abraham's death and read it as if you were just reading it. Just read the whole thing and watch this man. Watch what God does here, okay? So he was 75 years old when he was called in chapter 11 and 175 years old when he was buried in chapter 25. A hundred years of Abraham's life in 13 chapters. Now, this is a lesson for us because when we read the scripture, we turn the page we go, didn't he learn anything from the last time? Well, it's been 15, it's been 15 years since we've... There's all sorts of big gaps in the story of Abraham. And that's important for us. Because David Pollison says it this way, God is content to work in decades in your life. And if you don't believe that, ask your spouse. You didn't get it? 
Okay, good, good, good. Don't, doesn't anybody laugh here? <laughs> I know S and Okay, never mind. We'll just keep going. You'll, you'll catch on. So his story, the story of Abraham is a study in God's faithfulness. Abraham is called Father Abraham. He may be called our father in the faith, but God himself is the author of our faith. And that's very important. And he's learning here in these pages about God. And let's be honest, Abraham's a slow learner. Is anybody a slow learner in here besides me? Abraham's a slow learner. He does some foolish things out of fear, out of disbelief, out of impatience. But God, gospel in two words, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, gospel in two words, but God is faithful. And Abraham is getting to know God, not just the letters and the sounds. Abraham is comprehending who God is. He's come a long way from when God first called his name in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So Abraham, when he prays, his prayer is a responding to the God who first spoke to him. So let's look at it. That's the introduction's over. First, first point, just so you get caught up. Okay, stay with me. Genesis chapter 18, look at 13 through 9, 16 through 19. The men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abram with, went with them to set them on their way. As a good host, Abram sees his guests are taken care of, and he sees them on their way, on the road, to make sure they're going where they need to go. But at the same time, commentators mention this, but if you read it carefully, you sense that Abraham wants to spend more time. He wants to stay in the presence of these ones. Have you ever considered for a moment, have you ever considered that God never asked you to make an appointment? Have you ever tried to pray and God said, time out, you don't have an appointment? Have you ever had that happen? Abraham is in the presence of God and he knows it and he, he doesn't need an appointment. He's already there and he's doing it. My son told me a story recently. I have a, I have a grown son. He's, he's in computer technology. He's a computer engineer of some sort. I don't know what he does. He tells me every time and I still don't understand it. But he was at a a gathering of his company, a big company gathering, and they took him away to a resort for a whole week. Now, we're talking hundreds of people, fully paid for, very wealthy thing. The company's worth millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he's just one of the engineers, just somewhere down the line. It turns out that the owner, the founder of the company, wanted to meet my son. So he says, Dad, I had to go through two levels of security. You can't just go to meet the owner. And I had to go through two levels of security. I went to this, through this level, and then I went to that level. And as this was happening, he was in a very large room, and there was a mezzanine over the top, and all his buddies were up there watching. And finally, they looked down and goes, where's he going? And they watch him walk all the way up and get an appointment face-to-face -face with the founder. He had a 20-minute appointment and a perfect time. That was it. And I said to him, what do you do when you get that kind of appointment? He says, you say hello, you tell him your name, and then you wait for him to speak. I said, what'd you do? He said, I said hello, and I waited for him to speak. And he said, when he said something to you, what did you do next? I answered in short sentences, waiting for him to continue the conversation. That's a great way to pray. Think about, that is a great way to pray. We spend a lot of time chattering when in fact we should be standing before God. Abraham stood before God and waited for God to speak. Abraham is in response. He's responding to the God who spoke to him first. 
And this is what God says in verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now pay attention to verse 19. I don't know if you noticed it. Okay. The beginning of the meaning of Abraham's call is in verse 19. And that's really what I want to talk to us about this morning, because Essence said I could. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he had promised him. And what was the promise to Abraham? Remember? It was descendants, lots of descendants, stars and sands, stars of the sky, sands of the sea. I'm a sand, and I got a star for a wife, okay? So she's one of the stars. I'm just a piece of sand, okay? But it, it, it works out. It works pretty good. So, and some of you know what I'm talking about. God is always the initiator. He's always the initiator. If you get nothing else from me this morning, God always initiates. If you know him, he initiated that conversation. And he initiated that. He's in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And our response to him is obedience to his will. And what's his will? You ready? Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice because God's in the justice business. Now, before you panic and think I'm a social justice warrior, you need to know something about my understanding of justice. We own the corner. The church owns the corner on justice. We are the ones who have before a just God who we deserve mercy when we should have gotten wrath. God holds back his justice to us for the name of Christ so that we would be his. Okay, So justice and social justice, if you do not base it on the church, if you don't base it on the scriptures, it can never come to the right conclusion. So if it's bugging you in the culture, that's because the church has been way too quiet about justice. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Shall I hide from Abraham as Abraham learns of God and God's thoughts that lead Abraham to prayer? Eugene Peterson says it this in his book entitled Answering God. And we've ever read Eugene Peterson's Answering God. It's about, it's about the Psalms. And he says this. He says, the Psalms are acts of obedience, answering the God who has addressed us. These prayers do not seek God. They respond to the God who seeks us. These responses are often one of surprise for who expects God to come looking for us? Who expects God to come looking for the likes of us? When was the last time you looked up and went, you called me? You know my name? I'm a hopeless moral failure. I'm just a plumber. I'm just a knucklehead Irishman. This teaches us that prayer is not simply an appeal to God as much as a response to God. Our best prayers are when we respond to the God who's seeking us. When conviction comes, warning comes, comfort comes, God is speaking to us. Susie's father came to Jesus very late in his life. And he was a very baby Christian when he came to visit us when we lived on Afton Mountain. And I was in the throes of a decision. Should I leave my beautiful home that I just completely renovated? I took a thousand square foot cinder block building. I added a thousand up. I put 300 off. I put a house on my addition and it was pretty, I must say it was pretty nice. On six acres. And we had a dog. It was beautiful. And so we're going for this walk and Fran, his name was Fran, and he, it was on my heart, so I, I just sort of mumbled about it out loud, and he looks at me and he says, 
Well, if God's calling you, you have to go. The disciples left their boats and their nets. You need to go. And I thought, God, you're speaking to me through this man who's been a Christian for 10 minutes? This is what God does. He speaks to us. And so we have to stay attuned all the time to hear him. So obviously, we did. We left our home. We left our beautiful house, our yellow Labrador that my family loved. And we moved to Jackson, Mississippi, three doors from, well, three doors from a lot of hot weather. Okay, let's leave that alone. Okay? God delights in surprising us. He delights in giving us goodness in all sorts of places. So Abraham's response to his prayer to God is framed now. Now we're going to get tighter here. Now we're going to get tighter here. Framed in the recognition of who God is. Let's look at his prayer. We see theology and humility. Wouldn't be a Presbyterian sermon without some theology. So you're going to get some theology coming up. Look what it says. Remember, he's with them walking on the way. And look what it says in verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the cry that has come to me. If not, I will know it. Now, the outcry here, this word outcry, we need to focus on that for a minute. It implies, as it does in the Psalms and in the prophets, it implies the noun itself and the verb form here implies shrieks of torment. The outcry from Sodom are shrieks of torment of the oppressed. The shrieks and the torments of the oppressed have come to the ears of God. The Bible uses the same image in Genesis chapter 4. Abel's blood is crying out. The victim's blood is crying out. The same language is used in Genesis 6 to describe the condition of the society before the great flood. The sin of Sodom, now hear me, hear me carefully. The sin of Sodom is not isolated to moral to immoral sex. That was an outworking of him. That was an outworking of it, but that's not the only reason the cry came to God. It's very important because you know who helps us with this? Ezekiel. Our brother Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. Let me read that to you again. This is what Ezekiel is saying. He's saying this, she, her daughters had pride. These are the daughters of Sodom. They had food, prosperous ease, things in excess, and they did not aid the poor and the needy. John or James tells us in chapter 5, verse 4, Behold, the wages of the labor who mowed your fields, which you kept back, are crying out against you. The oppression of the, weak, of the poor over the weak gets heard before the throne of God. He hears when, can I say this carefully to you? When we oppress people. I am wealthy. Do you know that? I am very wealthy. I got stuff. You come to my house, I got stuff. I got all sorts of stuff. All of us here are wealthy. I couldn't, when I came into this church, and now I'm really going to get pointed with you. That's okay. You may never ask me back. It's okay. Um, when I came into this church, I looked around and said, this is beautiful. And Essen asked me to say something about church planting. When you go to plant a church, because <laughs> I heard oh, Don prayed. Wondering if maybe we should do some church planning. He prayed. I heard him. I, I shouldn't tell you who's... I won't, I'm not going to tell you who said this, but somebody said, yeah, church planning's difficult, but we've been visiting this place called Waynesboro, and it wasn't me, so there's only somebody else. You'll figure out who she is in a minute, okay? Says, she started saying, Waynesboro's got a beautiful building, they got everything, and they got comfortable seats. 
Do you know that when you plant churches, you sit on folding metal chairs? Do you know that the people at All, Na- at All Nations Church at our church plant in Charlottesville, they used to bring their own fanny packs, fanny pads, just because the chairs were hard. Just a small thing to pay, small price to pay for church planting. Church planting is difficult, very, very difficult. Okay? But we are wealthy. We are wealthy. And so, so remember what he said. He said, he, you walk before me in righteousness and justice. The cry of injustice, the strongly oppressive of the weak. And God is a champion of the weak. And he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And we know that passage of scripture. Abraham has learned this about God. Sarah has not conceived yet. She has not yet conceived by this point in the story. And Joyce Baldwin writes of Sarah, the more clearly God's promises spelt out to Abraham, the more clearly Sarai saw herself as a failure. Can you picture Sarah for a minute? Can you just picture her? Can you picture her waiting every time Abraham hears this great promise? They wait a long time, by the way. A long, long time. And every time she hears this promise, she goes, and then she tries to Hagar method. Remember that method? That didn't work out too good, the Hagar method. Read it, it's in there. That was Ralph Davis, Hagar method. So when it's impossible, God shows up for the weak. When things get impossible, God shows up for the weak. What's that have to do with church planting? Y'all are strong. You guys are strong. You're beautiful. I, I, I like it here. Susie and I said, if they let us come back, we might. Not to preach, just to be part of you because you're beautiful here. But could you imagine some of you going Some of you going somewhere and sitting on hard chairs? Just think about it. So the men turned from where they went toward Sodom, but Abram stood still before the Lord. The literal is, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Now picture this with me for a minute. Abraham's not ignorant. He knows what's going on in Sodom. His nephew's there. He knows exactly what's happening in Sodom. His nephew was there. In chapter 14, Abraham had to go rescue his, his, his nephew Lot. And Abraham takes 318 of his trained men, trained men to rescue Lot. And God blesses him and he's victorious. But he not only rescues Lot, but also the people of Sodom and all their possessions. So picture this parade of the people of Sodom and all their possessions going back from being rescued by Abraham. Abraham must have talked to a few of them. He must have got to know some of their stories, some of their pain, some of their suffering, all the trauma they've been through. The Lord's standing before Abram, and he says to Abram, the commentators are very clear about this, and I think it's clear in the text as well. I don't think you need a commentator for this. He's suggesting by standing in front of Abraham, what do you think of all this, Abraham? He's asking Abraham to render judgment. He's saying, what do you think? What do you know about me? What have you learned about me? And then Abraham does the astounding thing. He draws near to God. The implication is he's invited to be an advocate for righteousness and justice for the people of Sodom. Abraham asked God in Genesis 18, 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham's argument is founded on a concern for justice. Not just the presence of Lot in the city. E.F. Roop writes in his commentary on Genesis, says, Abraham proposes the future of everyone be determined not by the wicked ones in the midst of the community, but the righteous ones. Let me read that to you again. Abraham proposes to God 
That the future of everyone be determined not by the wicked ones in the midst of the community, but the righteous ones. And guess what? God agrees with him. God agrees with that concept. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. When Will you sweep them away from the place and not spare them for 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing in verse 25. Abraham's got his theology straight. Abraham has learned his ABCs about God, and he sees that God's first response is compassion. His first response is compassion. Verse 26, And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the place for their sake. The Lord wishes none should perish, but all should come to know the glory of the Lord. He argues like this. Let me put it in plain, ordinary words. I know you're not going to let the righteous perish for the sake of the wicked. But why let the but why let the wicked live? But why not let the wicked live for the sake of the righteous? Why not let the wicked live for the sake of the righteous? Abraham's asking, could there be a situation in which the righteousness of a few cover the unrighteousness of the many? Now, if you know your theology, your bells should be going off. We had one who was offered up for the sins of the many. Abraham is showing us all the way back in chapter 18 that this is how God thinks. This is Abraham showing us the plan of salvation in this passage, the righteous substitution for the unrighteous. Gerhard von Rad puts it this Gerhard von Rad puts it this way, should not a smaller number of guiltless men be so important before God that this minority could cause a reprieve for the whole community? The law of guilt transference has its counterpoint in the law of substitution. Guilt transference, our salvation, transferred to Christ, his perfect life transferred to us. Substitution, the law of substitution. It's right here in Genesis. It's right here in Genesis. What amazing, what's amazing is how, Von Rod continues, how his courage in con- continually increases during the conversation as Yahweh is willing until he arrives at the astonishing fact that even a small number of innocent men is important in God's sight that a majority of sinners, that a majority of sinners so predominant in God's will to save over his will to punish. Now, why am I saying all this to you this morning? Because it gets down, you know the story, he ends up with 10 and they stop at 10. I'll just tell you that part, right? They got all the way down to 10. And you know what 10 is? 10 is the number to form a synagogue, In Jewish tradition, 10 men were enough to form a synagogue. So here's my question. Are there 10 people in this congregation who would be willing to go to Weir's Cave? I just heard it, so I don't know where Weir's Cave is. Are there 10 righteous? That means righteous because Christ loves us. Christ has called us. We are belonged to him. Are there 10 righteous people willing to go to help a community who is crying out? They don't know what they need. If they knew what they need, they'd be here. Now, have you noticed it's hard to get unbelievers in your church? Has anybody noticed that? Am I the only one who has that problem? I'm an evangelist. I could talk the ears off a wooden Indian. I am constantly in conversation with people about Jesus, but getting them to come to church, no way. I used to tell, (laughs) I'm being recorded, aren't I? Oh, dear. It's all right. I used to tell my people when I was in central New York, they'd say, why doesn't anybody come to our church? I said, because they don't like you. What do you mean they don't like you? Because you treat them like foreigners. 
You've got to let them come. We've we got to go where they are. We have to go to them. This is the heart of church planning. We have to do this. It's, it's right here. It's right here. The sake of the wicked rely on the righteous. Someone has to go. Jesus came. He's done his part. Now, as followers of Christ, we are called to go. See, we know about righteousness as PCA people. I think a lot of us are PCA. Some of us are pretending, and that's okay. That's all right. Uh, we know our theology. We talk all about it. Your songs are beautiful this morning about grace. I'm listening to your songs. I'm thinking, I love these songs. Essen preached last week, and I got in the car and said to Susie, I'm glad I know Jesus. I've heard a lot of sermons where I'm not glad I know Jesus. Just get yelled at. Okay? But I've heard, I hear Essen preach, and I said, this man preaches the gospel. And it, I just went home and went, oh. But sometimes he says stuff to you. I heard him. Some of you this, some of you that. That's his gentle way. I'm not as gentle. The question is, are we going to follow the command of the Lord? We got the righteousness up down right, but the justice means we will go and campaign and champion those who are lost, champion those who are being oppressed. Do you know sin is the greatest oppressor there is? They're being oppressed in their sin. They're outcry. They don't even know what they're saying yet, but someone has to go. Someone has to help. Someone has to do it. And last point, and I'm done. Last part. This is the end, honest. I, I'm right on time. All church plants don't work. I've done two church plants. One very successful, and one didn't get enough traction. Sometimes they just don't work. That doesn't mean you don't go. Faith is not seeing everything clearly. Faith is trust that the one who gave you the impossible command, go into all nations... Gave you the most unbelievable promise. You know what the rest of it is? And I will be with you. The impossible command with the best possible companion. And God sends us on our way. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, it's before you that we live and move and have our being. And this morning, we simply ask that you'd separate wheat from chaff. We pray that our hearts would be stirred, that we would lay down our lives for the lost. And we ask this in Christ Jesus' name.